Joe presents TKO together with 32 Red. Welcome to TKO on Joe together with 32 Red, we're a podcast and YouTube show with you every Thursday. We're on the road this week in one of the most famous fight cities in the world. Philadelphia is and has been host to some of the greatest fights and fighters of the last hundred years and even further back than that. Today we're going to take a tour of the city and learn all about the rich history of boxing in this fabulous place. I'm very pleased to say the man that is going to be our tour guide and historian for the day is the former editor-in-chief of The Ring magazine, Mr Nigel Collins. Hi, how you doing man? Oh, very well. Um, we landed four days ago. I know this is a very familiar city uh, to you but it isn't to me. What a fabulous place first of all. It is. I mean you know, if you live somewhere long enough, you learn to like it. <laughs> uh, I once, um, for five years, I worked in uh, Manhattan, and um, I always used to go home as soon as I could. Like, in Philadelphia, if you want a freak show, you know where to find it. In Manhattan, you can't get away from it, you know. It's a city of neighborhoods. There is still some rivalry between fighters in Philadelphia from different neighborhoods. Um, North Philly, where we are now, is very, very... Uh, good nursery for fighters. So is South Philly, West Philly. I mean, there's, they come from all different places. There's not as much rivalry as there used to be because there's a lot of Philadelphia fighters that won't fight each other anymore. Don't ask me why, because that's the real key to filling the house up, two local guys fighting each other. Second to that's a local guy with a known fighter. So your association with this city goes back a long, long way, but the history of boxing in this city goes back a hell of a lot further. I'm not quite that old, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it went all the way back to the bare knuckle days, but um, of course it was illegal then, but they didn't make much difference. 1905, at the turn of the century, a guy called Philadelphia Jack O'Brien became the light heavyweight champion, and he was our first world champion. In those days, the light heavyweight championship wasn't worth much. You know, it just really wasn't a, a division that had much history at that point. Uh, people weren't that interested. So he never even be bothered to defend it. Really? <laughs> yeah, so because he could make more money fighting heavyweights and what have you. Uh, but later, we had um, some light heavyweight champions that were really good. In the 60s, there was Harold Johnson. And, and then we had Tommy Loughran in the 30s. Tommy Loughran, many people think he's the greatest fighter ever from Philadelphia. He had like 90 wins and only 14 of them were knockouts, so he, he knew how to box. Mm. Uh, he even fought for the heavyweight title against Primo Carnero, and he complained afterwards that Carnero stepped all over his feet, which was pretty bad because Carnero was, for those days, was a giant. So anyway, then they had uh, Matthew Saad Muhammad. He uh, was a great fighter, extremely exciting. And um, he, he was the fourth, and there hasn't been one since, except Bernard Hopkins. Bernard Hopkins uh, won the light heavyweight championship late in his career, and currently holds the record for being the oldest fighter to ever win a, a major title. Philadelphia uh, was like most places in the United States that when every neighborhood had a gym, there were certain times in Philadelphia in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, till the war started, where you could see boxing almost every night. Really? Yeah. So now we have maybe two cards a month. That sounds pretty good, but not when you were having four, five, six. They even sometimes had cards on Christmas 
they were usually like a special daytime card on Christmas. So boxing was a huge part of the city, but now, even though we have two guys that hold titles, Tevin Farmer and Julian Williams, right? We're good fighters. We don't get any publicity from the mainstream media. It's very, very difficult. The Eagles, well, here's how a guy described it, right? The lions get the carcass first, you know, and then the, the buzzards, and then the hyenas, and the boxing comes in right after the hyenas. You know, I guess it's just pure finances, you know. In terms of venues, the Blue Horizons, a place that we're going to make a trip to, one of the most iconic venues in the city with a lot of history, mm -hmm. was named around the 1960s? Yeah, it goes all the way back. The building was built like 1865, something like that. It was a residence for rich people for a while. But then the Loyal Order of the Moose, which was sort of a club, I guess, they took it over and it maintained that name till the 60s where a gentleman who was a promoter, Jimmy Toppy Sr., bought it and named it after the movie, Beyond the Blue Horizon. The Blue Horizon basically stayed active on and off until it um, closed down. The women that owned it at the time were way behind in the taxes. Uh, there were a lot of structural problems. It would have cost a lot of money to fix up. And it's now just a derelict building. But the real heyday was when the USA Network had the Tuesday night fights. And once a month, they were at the Blue Horizon. And the fights were really good. It's a very small venue. From the balcony, you could literally jump in the ring if you wanted to. So you're right on top of the fighters. And I think that's one of the reasons they fight so hard there. It became a, a national thing. People would actually take their vacation to come to the Blue Horizon. And the promoter sometimes sold out before he announced who was fighting. So that was, that was the glory days of the Blue Horizon when everybody knew about it, you know. It was named um, number one venue for boxing in the Ring magazine. Uh, which I told him to do because I was the editor. <laughs> but no, it is because it's very intimate. So um, everybody that's a boxing fan in Philadelphia, uh, you know, mourns the loss of the Blue Horizon because there's so many fabulous, uh, I mean, practically everybody fought there. I mean, and it was like a cauldron of noise, yelling instructions, uh, cursing. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of fun. Where was, um, where was the first... Jack Dempsey and Gene Tunney fight. Well, that was way down in uh, South Philadelphia, right where the uh, sports complexes are now. There's an indoor venue, there's the football stadium and the baseball stadium. Now, somewhere on that acreage was the stadium that was built, or finished in 1926, called Susky Centennial Stadium, mm. because there was a big fair here with that name. But as soon as the fair was over, they changed it to Municipal Stadium. Right. But yeah, Jack Dempsey fought there against Gene Tunney, and Gene Tunney won the title, and there were like 120,000 people there. Wow. There was a little bit of radio in those days, but there was no TV, so most of the money came from, you know, selling seats. But as time went on, you know, television got huge, and then there was closed circuit, and now there's pay-per-view. They didn't need a stadium that big <laughs> for boxing. Yeah. But the last big fight there was Rocky Marciano winning the heavyweight title from Jersey Joe Walcott in 1952 with a 13th round knockout. Marciano came off the floor, caught a nasty right hand. And, um, you know, there was, there was over 40,000 people there, which is a good crowd, but not 120,000. But when the Rolling Stones played there 
in the 60s, they had 100,000 people to see them, and the Beatles played there as well. So it wasn't just boxing, it wasn't just football, it was just multi-purpose stadium, but it was just too old and um, too big. You know, this is the only place I know in the world where you're allowed to park in the middle of the street. Really? <laughs> it's illegal, but this is South Philly, <laughs> and they let you do it in wow. South Philly because they always did it, and nobody would get elected if they went against oh, that. No, I think I think Pacienda's, is it yeah. whatever it is, it's up ahead, yeah, yeah. this is it. Pay, uh, Pacienc. Yeah. Yeah, that's it, yeah, it's up ahead. So we're going right here. Well, right, right we're going the way we want to go. So that's all right. As long yeah. as it's See, there's enough. two streets here. Yeah, we're, yeah. we're going up the second one. Good. Well, so I think we're just pulling up to the Blue Horizon now. Let's, um, let's jump out and have a look, shall we? All right. So here we are, yeah, the Blue Horizon. And right on cue, some unbelievable wall art. Just at the top, Muhammad Ali, Ali Frazier, top right. Can't tell who the others are from this the, the lights on it, but I think the bottom left is, it might be Larry Holmes. And George Foreman. Ah, and George Foreman's bottom right, the big four. Um, well, that's fantastic. So this is where Georgie Benson fought here, who of course went on to coach Pernell Whitaker, Vander Holyfield, Meldrick Taylor. Oh yeah, he trained all those guys, a lot of them up at the uh, Fraser gym. So what they used to do is they had one price for upstairs and downstairs, just first come, first serve. And the front row of the balcony is the best seat in the house, right? So when they finally opened the door, there was a stampede. People would run up the stairs to get those prime seats. Wow. And it was unreal. It was like, a, you know, the Oklahoma land rush to get a seat. And uh, I know, but then, then finally they decided, like, you know, to have actually assigned seats and uh, all that end. Makes things a bit safer, right? Well, no, not as much fun. No, no. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, this was it. Almost religious place in boxing, yeah. yeah. It's and a shame I, that it's in the is. condition yeah, it's in it now. Is. Right? It's, uh, I wonder what it's like inside now. I don't know. We could check a peek in if you want. Should we, should we have a look? Sure. You never know, the doors might even be uh, accidentally unlocked. I don't think so. Oh, wow, okay, yeah, it's all kind of boarded up. Oh yeah, it looks oh, like uh, wow. It's like like manning the barricades. Yeah, there, huh? yeah. Huh? Loads of old storage stuff stacked up: pianos, bikes, wardrobes, chairs, old vending machines. Well, I guess this would have been like the open, the kind of reception, the open. Reception yeah, this is the lobby. Yeah, the ticket lobby. office is over here. And then you go in, and then the arena. Did it kind of? How big is it when you get in? Well. Like I say, it's supposed to seat uh, about 1,300 and change. It's not bad. So, um, you know, it's like a small arena. <laughs> right, okay. Boy, I can't tell you the times I've come here. Really? Yeah. Do you remember when you first came here? Would have been Benny Briscoe, right? Yeah, he knocked out Tito Marshall, who had beaten him before, and it was... <laughs> Benny came out, Benny was a dirty fighter. He came out, he hit him in the balls, hit him in the chin, and all over. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about 
Joe Frazier. One of your favorite fighters, Joe Frazier? I have a great admirer of Joe Frazier, the fighter, not too much of Joe Frazier, the man. Why is that? He was a very prickly guy. He was hard to get along with. Was he? Yeah. That's interesting. At one time, I um, managed a few fighters, and uh, one of them used to train at his gym, and his trainer had to go out of town with another guy. So he said, hey, listen, Nigel, what? just keep time for him. You know, make sure he gets to the gym, works out. So I'm there up on the apron, time in the sparring, and somebody comes down and says, Joe wants to see you. So he wanted me to pay dues for doing this. And when I explained the situation to him, because he knew the, the real trainer very well, he sort of said, all right, you know, but it's like it's things like that. I guess you could say he was a guy who had his chip on his shoulder, that mm. kind of personality. But once the bell rang, man, he was holy hell. Mm. Yeah. Obviously, when he turned pro, beat Jerry Quarry, Oscar Bonavine, and Buster Mathis, guys that Ali beat within a kind of 12 months of each other. Do you think that those comparisons helped to build that rivalry and then given that Ali was out in the wilderness for three years when he returns, that built that public anticipation for that fight? I think they did it well because, you know, he had those two fights with good fighters. Mm. He wasn't just rusty. If they hadn't have done that and he'd have, you know, come in from exile and the first guy he fought, Joe Fraser, it would still be huge. It was just the fact that he was like the king in exile. Mm. And Joe Fraser, you know, he, he was a, the real champion. They would had a tournament. Um, he beat the winner of the tournament because he wasn't in it. He'd had some defenses. Um, so the three Ali Fraser fights, that third fight, took a lot out of Frazier, obviously it was towards the end of his career. Mm -hmm. Didn't really leave him anything in the tank for when he fought George Foreman. Do you think that fight could have been a little different had it been earlier on in Frazier's career? Fighters fight until they got nothing left. Mm. And some fighters, great fighters, when they're over the hill, they're better than 99% of the other guys. You know, you see that a lot. Mm. So we're gonna head to the Joe Frazier statue. And there's also something I mentioned, uh, but we haven't mentioned. Uh, Joey Giardello was a, a middleweight champion, beat yeah. Dick Tiger. What a story. What a character. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the gym he used to pay, train at was, was on Pass Young Avenue. And there's a statue of him that's really nice. It's a lot nicer than Joe Fraser's statue. He looks out of proportion to me. Okay. But the reason there's a Joe Fraser statue is because all the boxing people were pissed off that the only you know, boxing statue in Philadelphia was the Sylvester Stallone. Mm. And that was an impetus behind finally getting the money together to, to get a Joe Fraser statue. Well, let's head, to, uh, let's head to the statue first. Okay, what we want to do is get past City Hall and, and you go down uh, several miles south and, uh, well, before we get there, you'll start to see the stadiums looming up. Uh, Perfect. And, of course, we, you mentioned it there. We would be remiss not to talk about the, the impact of the Rocky movies on boxing as a whole in America. Oh, yeah, and, of course, yeah. on this city, it's, uh, it's become well, a cultural Do icon. you want to go and see the Rocky steps? Absolutely. All right. There's the thing is that it doesn't matter when you go to the art museum, day or night, there's people running up the damn steps. It's crazy, isn't it? The, the tourists want to do it. Athletes want to do it. At one time, I think it was about 10 years ago, two guys got permission to camp out at the top of the steps. 
and they photographed people day and night and made a, a photo book out of it of people running up the steps, all kinds of people. Um, the view from the steps, though, is something pretty oh, special. Oh, yeah, nice, nice skyline, yeah. Yeah, and of course, it's one of the most iconic shots in the movie itself and, and of course it recurs in in later films too which you're is... going to be going to new jersey if you keep going up here man it's too late now you're going to have to go to new jersey turn around and come back oh, what beautiful bridge the, the films themselves it's it's hard to really overstate the the impact that they had well i, I think what it did the popularity of boxing it made boxing a trendy in thing to do yeah. the people that would never even think of going to the fights after the the first Rocky movie, leave alone all the other ones, that you know they wanted to be part of that scene, and it did increase attendance and attention on boxing. So, so as a journalist at those fights, could you feel that impact after the after the movie at certain fights? Well, what you did, you saw the crowds getting larger, right? Yeah, and uh, you know, after boxing's a very small world, you know, even though it's a truly international sport, probably only second to soccer or football. Um, but Rocky struck a chord with everybody. I mean, a lot of fighters decided to become boxers because they saw the movie. Vinny Pazienza is one that always talks about that. Uh, you know, so a lot of guys, because they wanted to be like Muhammad Ali, but believe it or not, it's almost like people thought he was a real fighter. Mm. You know? and he, he's not very big. No. No. no he's not a big guy. Yeah, he wouldn't be a heavyweight, that's for sure. But they got the guy, Carl Weathers, and they matched up well. stay when you can over to the right you know they got a few things it's a place where down here called see what it says infinity down there yeah. on that building at the front of the building you're going to see joe fraser very soon now they were at the back of the building go up to the next light there he is see him oh wow turn yeah. the corner i think you can park and there's a place to park so there's the joe fraser statue wow it's big now, should we get out and go and have a look yeah, yeah. awesome Oh yeah, we've got the child lock on. Well, I'm a child still. Yeah, so am I. Oh, it's the silver thing above the door. Right. That one, and then we're, then we're out. Wow, there's a lot around here now. Yeah. So this is where he is. There he is, smoking Joe Frazier. Hey, all the people come to Philadelphia, I gotta take them down here. <laughs> so obviously he wasn't born here, but firmly embraced as a, as a Philadelphia fighter. Oh yeah, yeah, I mean, a lot of the guys weren't born here. Do you think there was an element of bitterness towards Ali? I know they were friendly in his later years, but during the, the kind of late 60s and early 70s, very much in the shadow I of I think Ali. Joe hated Ali to the day he died. Yeah. I think that the uh, he was talked into being nice for, they made a movie and whatever, but no, I think Joe hated him right to the end. Wow. I mean, Ali was like unnecessarily cruel to him. Yeah, the gorilla, the gorilla yeah, child. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know. But the thing is, there's a little bit of Joe's fault, too. Oh. Oh. So, yeah, there's Joe. There he is. Yeah, there he is. And uh, I'm glad there's a statue of him. He deserves it. Hey, somebody's getting married there. Something. Somebody oh, in a white dress. Wow. I mean, this is. Uh, well, of all the steps in the world, this is this has got to see as much action as 
almost there's, any set of steps in the yeah, world. Yeah, there's right? some famous steps in Rome, I think, but they're yeah, nothing like this. It's an old alleyway. Wow. <laughs> and then there's Rocky right there. So you said the, the statue's been moved a few times over First it was up there, then it was outside of the spectrum that's now gone, and this was the compromise. So is there a bit of a conflict of interest between the art museum and the, and the statue because of... They the know it's not fine art. That's why they didn't want it on up at the top. Right. So then they moved to the spectrum, everybody hated that. So this was a compromise. He's not inside the museum, he's on the grass out front. So you're right, there is a... There is a wedding party, getting their yeah. pictures on Yeah, they were, they're, these were where the kids used to swim on the side, yeah. Right, okay. All right, there's some guys running up. I'm ready, are you ready? You're going to run up with me? Yeah. yeah. They're 73 years of age. 73, let's get me a... I'm impressed. All right, well, let's jog up. I'll go with you. You lead the way. All right, let's get going. <laughs> I don't think I'll be able to do this when I'm 73. You just never stop. That's that the whole it is? thing. Oh, yeah, no. He's the key. Right. Carl went up here in about 10 seconds. Yeah, I bet he did, yeah. There was a guy in front of him. You could tell he wanted to pass him, and he did. We have to do the celebration at <laughs> the top as well. Good work. Good work. How far behind were you? Oh, it's gorgeous today. It is, isn't it? Yeah, I have very often drive by, and there's one guy running up here. Yeah. In the middle of the night. Yeah, still. You're looking in on something very special tonight. The Giardello Carter match is the first championship fight to be telecast in five long years. And there he is, the challenger, Roman Hurricane Carter, with his big wearing the black trunks with the white stripe, weighing 160 pounds, the middleweight champion of the world, Joey Giardello. And there's Joey, the champion of the world. There's Joey, yeah. So just find a parking place and we'll Oh, come wow. Back. That's great. He didn't get a title till he was old. He came up at a time where there was a lot of young Italian-Americans. They're kind of a big influx of those oh, yeah, taking yeah, boxing, yeah. right? I like the way he's kind of uh, got the belt. Yeah, right that sort of that looks like him when he was young. And uh, here's his Ring Magazine championship belt. That's they got great. permission from me to put that on there. Oh, did they? Uh, yeah. That's great. And. Uh, the flyweight champion of the world, Midget Walgast, was from Philadelphia, right? He was ahead of his time, of his style. He was really good, but he was like, he trained like Giardello. And he once fought a main event at Madison Square Garden and robbed a gas station on the way home. These guys were crazy. <laughs> this was, um, I, I think the Fraser statue was, the city paid for it. This was public funds. And people chipped in for this, yeah. yeah. And as you can see, it, it is very nice, very nice. Joey Giardello fought everybody, okay? And they want him to get a fight with Ray Robinson. Now, Ray Robinson was way past his prime, but he was a big name, right? So they called up Ray, he said, ah, not interested. So he said, would you mind if we come up and talk to you? He said, oh, I can come up and talk, but, you know. So uh, I, the promoter, I guess, and the manager went up to uh, Ray's place in Harlem, and they took the ring record book with him. And he opened it up and showed him. He said, right, this is the only white fighter that fought all the tough black guys. And they showed, mm, it was true. He said, okay, I'll fight him. And so that's the only reason he came, because Joey was one of the few white fighters that would fight all the tough black guys. Oh. He didn't give a shit. 
it was really, he was that good. Lord knows how good he would have been if he trained. <laughs> but yeah, Joey, Joey, uh, I saw him fight live at the end of his career. And it was sort of like I told you, he'd fight hard for a while, then he'd coast, then he'd come on. And uh, usually, the fight. yeah, and usually win. But the thing with Reuben Hurricane Carter, I was going to go to that fight. My brakes failed, and I couldn't make it. So uh, I didn't see it. But uh, it was a close fight, but it wasn't a robbery. And, you know, Joey, Joey just was smart. He was a little bit smarter than Hurricane Carter. He avoided the big bombs. It was a close fight. Hurricane fought really well, too. It was a good fight. And then Joey uh, sued the movie makers because they made it all a racist thing. Jerry Jaredot was a racist, you know. That wasn't why the fight was made. It oh, was this too... is the hurricane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, of course, he, uh, he sued them, and um, I think he got a nice settlement. Wow, yeah, really? yeah, yeah. I used to see him, actually. I lived in um, Cherry Hill, which is right across the river for a while. And um, he lived in my neighborhood. And he had a, a, a son who was a special needs kid. I don't know exactly what was the matter with him. And I would see him with that son all the time, just walking around, sitting on a chair. I never started a conversation. I just say, hi, champ, and keep on going, you know, because he was with his kid. But uh, Joey was a good guy. I mean, you know, yeah, he robbed a gas station. That's <laughs> when he was young, yeah. It's not the worst thing you could have done, is it? I don't know. These guys are crazy. Well, you know, only risk takers become boxers. And that throws a whole different mindset in. You know, I mean, they, they just think, you know, they're up for anything. I mean, if, if you're up for boxing uh, for a long time on a professional level, you've got to be crazy a little mm. bit. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we, at his time, they didn't really know about the concussion syndrome. But Joey was, Joey was fine right up until he died. So, Nigel, um, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, but here ends our tour of Philadelphia. Um, thank you so much for your time. It's great. I always love to talk about boxing, especially Philly boxing. Me too. <laughs> to right. learn from someone like yourself has been yeah. an absolute pleasure. So thank you at home for watching another episode of TKO uh, Done and Dusted from Nigel, uh, Joey Giardello and myself. Thank you again. We'll see you in seven days' time uh, from all of us here in Philadelphia. Goodbye. You've been listening to TKO on Joe, together with 32 Red.